Brethren, if you would, take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 10. Psalm 10. And as we give our attention to this particular Scripture, let's ask the Lord to come and to open our eyes to His truth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come as a needy people to hear from You. And Lord, we pray that You would write Your eternal truth upon our hearts as the Word is proclaimed. Would You grant to us pliable hearts that are conformed into the image of Christ, sanctified by Your Word of truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 10, we're going to give our attention to the psalm in its entirety. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the afflicted, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Well, thus far, the Word of God, and may He bless it to us this evening. Last time we were in the Psalms, a couple of weeks ago, looking at Psalm 9, I made a point about the connection. That's happened three times now. So we'll try to stay focused. I made a point about the connection between Psalms 9 and 10 and how there's a broken acrostic poem between or linking together these two Psalms. And it leads some to argue that they are, in fact, one psalm. And that's possible, though I think, following the Hebrew text, that they're actually two psalms, companion pieces that reflect the rise and fall of emotions in the believer's life. 
You see, on the one hand, Psalm 9 had us thinking about Yahweh on the throne. And that concept was mentioned about four times in Psalm 9. He reigns forever. And from His seat of power and righteousness, He is a stronghold for the oppressed. And though we may face dire emergencies as David did when those who hated him came against him, David was confident in Psalm 9, he asserted, that the Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. The wicked who forget God, they strike, but they will go down to Sheol, and the needy shall not always be forgotten. In Psalm 9, David is anticipating the coming day of final judgment and the peace that God will give his saints when relief comes. And it comforts him. However, while the Lord is never unseated from His throne, and it's true His suffering people won't be forgotten forever, there are days in the present when the saints feel that they are forgotten. There are times where, for God's own good purposes, the power of darkness is allowed to prevail, and it seems to us that God refuses to bring His light. And in that situation, that raw feeling of being distant from God is that very thing David is describing in the psalm. Now, ordinarily, people associate distance from God as a problem caused by a particular sin. We could think, for instance, when the Lord doesn't answer King Saul at the end of his life when he's coming to face the Philistines and he's trembling and he ends up running to a witch rather than repenting of his sin. Or we could think of Samson, who was left by the Lord in the midst of his disobedience with Delilah. And brethren, there's no question that God gives His people bent on sin up to periods of silence. Sometimes the silence lasts, as it did for Saul, and he dies in darkness. Sometimes the Lord returns as His people repent. But there are other situations in life, in the life of the believer, where the discipline from God isn't for some particular sin, and yet trouble comes anyway, and God seems far off. In those times, like when Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer for two years, things can be horribly dark. Or we could think of the Lord seeing the affliction of His people in Egypt, remembering His covenant, And then it's 80 more years before Moses comes as the deliverer. Or we could think of David on the run from Saul and there seems to be no end and no relief from the attacks of this unrighteous man. You see, sometimes the bullies among the wicked roam freely and they waylay those who love God. Well, David is describing that very situation in this psalm. God appears to be hiding Himself. And the wicked attack and mock God And the afflicted are pleading to the Lord for help. Well, let's walk through the psalm under this scenario, seeing three specific things. And we begin with the hidden God. The hidden God in verses 1 to 3. David begins with this cry of lament. Why, O Yahweh, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now remember in the previous psalm, David had confessed, Psalm 9.9, that Yahweh was a stronghold in times of trouble. So brethren, how can God be both a high place of safety in various situations of trouble, and yet the God who has hidden Himself when trouble comes? Both of those things can't be true of God Himself. 
He isn't both available to offer protection to us and at the same time hiding Himself from us. Because God doesn't change. In fact, our Lord sees all things. Nothing is hidden from His sight. However, our sense of God's nearness does change. And David is speaking here according to the, not according to the objective reality of the all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present God who is a refuge for His people. David is speaking about the appearance of things from man's perspective when trouble seems to dominate. The question that David asks, why, O Lord? O Yahweh, You who are self-existent, unchanging, the with You God, why do You stand far away? And that question is not a philosophical, speculative inquiry. Why does He, God, act like this? No, it's a prayer rooted in relationship. Why do You stand far off? David feels far from God. And when he looks at the wicked having their way with the godly, attacking, oppressing, apparently exercising free reign as though God doesn't exist, and that's their attitude, David sees this and he wonders, why aren't, why isn't the Lord acting? How can the wicked go on like this? You see, the very question, though abrupt and arising out of an agitation of the soul, it assumes something about the Lord. It assumes that He cares about the troubles that swallow His people. It assumes that He is a God of justice and He has a concern to come to our aid. David knows God is an ever-present helper. He knows the Lord in His covenantal compassion in the depth of His love has an eye to His suffering people. And when David sees, verse 2, in arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor, he wants them to be caught in the schemes they have devised. David believes God is just and he is praying according to God's character. Lord, you sit on a throne of righteousness and justice. Your perfect reign means the wicked will not ultimately triumph. They're going to be made to answer for their deeds. But he is living in the tension of a present fallen world where all things are not right. And he's watching the wicked have their way and Yahweh permit it, even though he's on the throne. Isn't this the very thing that drives the cry of faith from the soul? Why, O Lord, why are the wicked carrying on in their evil? Why are the godly being hurt? Why do evil men get moments of victory? Now, if you're honest, don't you feel those very questions in your own soul. Lord, bring the end. Come, Lord Jesus. Give us the day of peace when there are no more threats. How can these evil men do these wicked things? But of course, when we're facing difficulty like this, the devil comes to provoke unbelieving thoughts in our mind to tell us God really is far off. He can't see everything. He can't attend to you and your trouble with all that's going on in the world. The devil stirs thoughts that God isn't really sovereign. Or Satan comes from a different angle and insinuates that God doesn't really care. He's shut you out. He's closed the door to your prayers. God has simply abandoned you. And while David asks the question, 
Why, O Lord, why do you hide yourself? Notice David does not allow the felt distance from God to cause him to disengage in prayer. David is running to the Lord with his concern. He's saying to the Lord in prayer, I know who you are. You are near to the brokenhearted. You are the God who sees me, though I feel unseen. You see, he's crying out for God's compassion. David is clawing through the hiddenness of God. He's battling his temporal perspective to plead with God to act. Rise up, O Lord, and defend your people. And why does he do that? Brethren, because he knows that God is a judge. So his prayer is a request that the Lord would take pity on his people and come to help. And dear friends, as we read David's lament, this cry for God to act, two foundational things about prayer should be learned by us. First, in prayer, we have a freedom to bring our frustrations to the Lord. We have a freedom as though who, those who know God's character to express to God the apparent gap between our circumstances and what we know of God. The Lord is our near companion. He's the shade at our right hand. And in the new covenant, we can boldly approach the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. So brethren, when your soul is vexed, what should you do? You run to the presence of God. You learn to pour out your heart before Him. Are you learning that lesson? It's easy to stand in the line with someone at a store and start complaining about the state of the world. Do you rather go to the God who can do something about it? Then there's a second thing we learn in prayer here. When we come expressing that God doesn't appear to be acting in a way that's consistent with His own character, there has to yet be an expression of faith. And you see that here with David. He asks God, knowing he isn't really hidden, knowing he doesn't fail to see that he is just. Verse 2, let the wicked be caught. Let their evil come back on him. There would be no way for justice to come to these rotten rebels if God didn't see. But he does see. So David is presently perplexed by the unfolding of providence. And yet he just keeps on praying in view of the character of God. Is that what we do? Brethren, do we bring our perplexities to God? Do we know our God so that we pray according to His character? Do we assume when God appears to be hidden that He hasn't moved? In the squeeze of trouble, do we find that the trouble is actually a spur to our faith to come before the Lord? The hidden God. But then secondly, see now, the haughty life, starting in verse 4. David moves from his own dilemma of faith and yet trusting Yahweh to giving a description of the wicked. It's really starting in verse 3, sorry. 3 to 11. We can divide the description here into three segments. First, David looks at what makes the haughty tick. What, what motivates the wicked? He says, verse 3, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Evil men 
focus their lives on the satisfaction of their desires. That's their chief end. The wicked are boastful. They're haughty people. And they set their hearts on whatever they want. Verse 3b, they're greedy for gain. And in that greed, with a covetous spirit to satisfy their cravings, God and others are just tossed aside. The pride of the wicked is chiefly characterized by a renunciation of the Lord, verse 3. God doesn't enter into their thoughts. Instead, the wicked think about immediate gratification, prospering, however the wicked define that. The wicked man pushes away God's judgments, God's rules for righteous living, and any person who stands in the way is completely dismissed. Verse 5, he puffs at his foes. That's a strange way to put it. What in the world does that mean? The idea here is he, he literally breathes at them. He, he scoffs at them. He blows them off. He totally dismisses them. The haughty man, the proud boaster, has no thought of God, and he's only out for number one. He listens to no one. His chief end is to follow his heart, to gain his desires. Now, Disney and Hallmark make sound following your heart so heroic, so romantic, because it assumes a, a thought from hell. It assumes that your desires themselves are good. But the Bible says, Proverbs 28, 26, he who, whoever trusts in his own heart, the ESV unfortunately has whoever trusts in his own mind. That's not what the Hebrew says. Whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool. To be a fool, biblically speaking, is to act like there's no God. And that's what the wicked are doing. They chase their cravings, casting off all restraint, and they only think all will be well. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. The wicked man tramples others, tickles his fancy, and thinks he's never going to get caught. That's the lie the wicked believe. And as the wicked man believes this, pressing to enjoy whatever he wants, what marks his conduct? Well, this is the second thing the psalmist shows us in his description. What stands out initially about the wicked are his words. His words. It's interesting. Jesus tells us it's out of the heart that the man speaks. The words of a man, woman, boy, or girl show us what the man, woman, boy, or girl is. Look at this haughty man. He's filled, verse 7, with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. The wicked are chasing the poor, trampling people down, making life miserable for the godly, but they express their domination through words, through verbal assaults. The wicked attack with lies, with manipulation. Think of Saul offering David his daughter in marriage. Oh, what a great thing that was until you recognize that Saul was trying to get David killed with the bridal price for his daughter. He's manipulated. Or think of when he told his son Jonathan, I'll back down from assaulting David, even swearing that he wouldn't take David's life. And just days later, he's throwing a spear at David and sending men to surround David's house to kill him. Saul was jealous 
of David because David stood in his way to power. So he lied about David. He cursed David. He sought to oppress David. He wanted to do anything possible to remove David from the scene. And that spills over into Saul's murderous intent, which is described next, verse 8. Not only does the wicked man use words to harm, he, the psalmist describes, sits in ambush in the villages. Now, this is a clue that the wicked being described here are not far-off Gentiles who live in some other place. The wicked described here are in the villages among God's people. What's that tell us? They are actually part of the covenant community. Brethren, we don't just face the problem of wolves out there in the world. Savage wolves can arise from within us to tear apart the flock with their selfish aims. And here the psalmist says they lurk in hiding places to murder the innocent. The haughty are looking for any way to abuse people and exalt themselves. Thus, verse 10, the helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. Now as David cried out in lament over the apparent hiddenness of God, this is really the problem here that perplexes him. Helpless people, people who are overwhelmed and demoralized, who are in inferior social positions, they're being crushed. People are being brought, Lord, into physical and emotional distress. They're driven to the ground. They're laid low and overcome. Think of David himself hiding out in a cave alone and saying, as Psalm 142 puts it, no one cares for my soul. Lord, how can this be? How can these brutalizers come and attack your people and get away with it? How can the wicked strut around and stomp on those who seek God? Or we can ask in our context, how can sexual abusers in the church draw another breath? How can, physically, how can people who are physically imposing their desires, throwing their weight around, subjugating the weak, maybe beating their children, or leaving their wives in a constant state of trepidation? How can they keep this stuff hidden? Or if we lived in the days of the Reformation, we might ask, how can one group claim to have the truth and then lie and cheat and steal and burn people at the stake to preserve their power? Isn't that the very conduct that we saw from the religious leaders in Jesus' day? Men who claimed to know God but weren't really worshiping the true God, just their idea of Him. They have no problem slinging slander, bribing people into treachery, and setting up false witnesses only so they could keep their positions of power. Doesn't that make you want to ask what David's asking in the psalm? Lord, how can this continue? How can you see the wicked walking around with confidence as though nothing is going to stop them? And that's the third thing in this description. The psalmist spells out their confidence. Verse 11, He, the proud boaster, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Now, brethren, it's interesting here that David began saying the godly feel like God has hidden himself, but the wicked actually believe God has hidden his face. They live with no thought of God. They just block God out. They think their evil will somehow fall through the cracks. 
It's not that they're atheists. There are no atheists in ancient Israel. They simply believe that God isn't paying attention to the details. He's not really attentive. So it doesn't matter how I live and how I hurt others. I can get away with it. Now as David spends all this time describing the thoughts and the actions, the mindset of the wicked, what's his point? Why is he giving the Lord all this information? Brethren, the very description is intended to provoke God's compassion. It's as if David is saying, Lord, look at these men who forget You, who violate Your Word, who are abusing the godly, who act like they'll never be held accountable. Lord, do You see their arrogance? Do You see the state of the people they afflict? Lord, take action. Brethren, we're learning here in the Psalms not just to pray pithy prayers for help, it's not unbiblical to just to say, help me. But the pattern of prayer in the Bible is to tell God all your trouble. We come to the Lord, our defender, and we lay out the whole case. We make known all the difficulties we're facing. And we don't do that as if God doesn't know. He knows. But we put Him to remembrance. We call on Him to act in a way consistent with His character. You know, common therapeutic psychology today says that people who are crushed and oppressed, they work through their trauma by talking about it. Well, there's truth in that. But are you talking to the right person? To God. Cast your cares upon the Lord because He cares for you. Do we bring all of our griefs about the arrogance of the wicked to God who keeps our tears in His bottle and will one day wipe the tears away from our faces? We assume He cares and that He will bring vindication. And we're keeping a proper perspective, brethren, that we're in a spiritual war. Evil is coming against us. We don't settle in this world as though this world holds all of our hopes. No, we're waiting for things to be put right. And descriptions like this remind us that this world is not our home. We long for relief that King Jesus will bring on the day of justice. Then finally, see with me, the hope of the afflicted. Verse 12 and following, when David feels the Lord has hidden himself, he doesn't think the Lord is absent. So he intercedes in view of this laundry list of the life of the haughty. Look at what he says, verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. David is here praying that Yahweh, the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished, will manifest His righteous power. And the idea of Yahweh lifting up His hand is that the Lord will wield His mighty scepter. And brother, we've seen back in Egypt what happens when the Lord redeems with a mighty hand. Enemies are violently overthrown and God's people are redeemed. The Lord fights for His people. Well, David is pleading that the Lord would intervene like that. He's already declared in the previous psalm, Psalm 9, that the Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted. That's a promise. Take it to the bank. Memorize it. The Lord doesn't forget the afflicted. But the prayer here is, Lord, this is who You've revealed Yourself to be, the God who doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. This is what You've promised. So I take hold of You on the basis of Your Word. 
Brethren, God's promises are the fuel for our prayers. The Lord doesn't have to be awakened from a slumber to act. He has already decreed the destruction of the wicked and the defense of the righteous, but He's pleased to use our prayers to fulfill His purposes. So we take His promises back to Him. Can you do that, beloved? Can you approach the throne of grace with an infallible Word, the very Word of God which stands forever? And thus David building momentum and increasing in hope, he confronts the ungodly here. Verse 13, he says, Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? Verse 14, But you do see. There's the assertion of faith. Now John Calvin writes on this psalm, that it's a temptation to which all men are prone by nature to doubt God's providence when we don't see God's hand and God's judgment. When we fail to see God bringing judgment, we, we doubt that He's on the throne. That's the idea. And while the wicked harden themselves, convincing their hearts that God is blind and deaf, the godly throw off doubts and lift up the shield of faith. We declare the truth. Verse 14, but you do see. The eye of the Lord is inescapable. Ask Jonah. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jeremiah 23.24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see Him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? The Lord is observing the afflicted state of the godly. He knows the mischief and vexation brought on us by the wicked. But more than that, the Lord, verse 14, takes it into His hands. That is, He considers the trouble and examines the situation personally as a judge. Now, in our fallen world, we who are oppressed have some recourse. Those who are bullied as kids can go to their teachers or their parents. Battered women can go to civil and spiritual authorities, the cops and church leaders. Oppressed people can appeal to lawmakers to bring about a change. Work can be done that they would personally care about the issue and take it into their hands. And yet we all know tonight the justice in this world remains imperfect. And the power to execute true justice is not in the hands of earthly men. But we have a Heavenly Father who will take it into His hands. The hope for the afflicted is in a God who always does what is right, who will right all wrongs, who will rescue those in darkness. We have a vindicator who will keep our soul Therefore, David says, verse 14, to you, the helpless, the person with nowhere to turn, to you he commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Fatherless here doesn't strictly mean just the orphan. It's parallel to the notion of being helpless. So the figurative sense is, Lord, you come to the aid of one with no defender, no caretaker. If you're laid low and crushed and overwhelmed by foes, if you're persecuted or slandered, or if you're the object of violence, you have a place, or better, a person to whom you may go. 
you may go to the God who sees. Brethren, that's one of the names of our God. Genesis 16, Hagar is on the run from Sarah. And she's conceived with Abraham and Sarah's mad about it. It was her idea. That's a different sermon. The angel of the Lord found Hagar, convinced her to return, comforted her with a promise, and then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, El Roy. You are a God of seeing. You are a God who sees. This is our God. He sees our suffering, our weaknesses. He sees the actions of wicked men. And He will do something. He exalted Joseph from prison. He saved Moses from a watery grave as an infant. He delivered David from Saul's tyranny. He raised Jesus from the dead. He is the helper of the helpless. Evil will not ultimately triumph. And in view of that, David prays for final justice. Verse 15, Break the arm or the power of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Brethren, isn't that what we ultimately want? We don't just want abusers caught to serve a prison sentence, manipulators put in their place, and slanderers silenced. We want a judgment so thorough there's no more wickedness to see. And that's the thing that our God will bring. Why will He do it? Because, verse 16, the Lord is King forever and ever. He reigns forever. And that means the nations perish from His land. We're all the way back to Psalm 1 again. The gateway to the Psalter. The way of the wicked will what? It will perish. Yahweh is on His throne. And that settles the struggles of David's soul. Does it settle the struggle of your soul? My God is on the throne. And because He's on the throne, righteousness reigns. And He will come to defend His people. In the meantime, while I wait on that day of accountability, David says, verse 17, O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You know, the wicked had his desires, his self-exaltation. But the desire of the afflicted is deliverance at the hands of the sovereign God. And Lord, You hear that. Brethren, with that thought that the Lord hears our desires, our pleas for deliverances, David says, verse 17, You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The day of justice is coming. But until it comes, David is confident that the Lord will strengthen our hearts. How does he do that? By listening to our prayers. I've quoted this hymn before by William Cooper, but I'll quote it again. That were a grief I could not bear. Didst thou not hear and answer prayer? But a prayer hearing answering God supports me under every load. We have a prayer hearing answering God. And that's how we have strength to live tomorrow. Yahweh's on the throne. He hears us when we cry. And He will bring evil men to account. And brethren, you have an even greater promise than David did here. You have the risen Christ saying, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So when God appears to be hidden, what do you do? You run to Him in prayer. You plead His promise. And you look to the day of judgment when all things will be put right. May God give us grace to pray like this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You open Your ear to us. We thank You that when we don't even know what to pray for, that Your Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groans that words cannot express. We thank You that King Jesus is at Your right hand and He's also interceding for us. But Lord, we pray with the knowledge that Christ reigns and that judgment's coming. We pray that we would continue to cast our cares upon You as the God who cares for us. Help us, O Lord, to battle through the times when we feel as though our trouble is hidden from You. Let us approach You in prayer and believe the words that You have given. And we ask that You would help us to do this, increase our faith. For we pray it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said,